here. Our holy, eternal Father. We thank you for establishing our steps here tonight. We thank you, Lord, for the great privilege and joy that you have made ours this evening to sing your praises and to sit now under the preaching of your word, which we pray, Lord, that you will not let our hearing be in vain, but we trust the Holy Spirit will greatly accompany the exposition of your word so that it will reach the hearts of each one of us tonight, sanctifying us more into the image of Christ as your people and giving us, Holy Father, a greater understanding of the greatness and the goodness of our eternal and triune God. These things we ask for Jesus' sake and in his name we pray. Amen. I do invite you to take God's word and let's open up to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. We are continuing this series that I've entitled, What Did Jesus Say? What did Jesus say? So we're, we're looking at very specific passages of Scripture throughout the Gospels that are very familiar to Christians, but tend to be, I think because of their familiarity, misunderstood, misinterpreted, misapplied. And tonight is, of course, one of those passages. Matthew 7 starting at verse 7 and reading to verse 11. Listen to the words, the recorded words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? And so reads the holy word of the living God. May God bless this to our souls. When we read the Sermon on the Mount, we must avoid at all costs the popular misinterpretation and misapplication of this sermon, which sees it only as glorified moralism. There are those people both in the church and in the world who believe that the Sermon on the Mount is a catalog of high moral virtues which anyone can achieve if they just work hard enough. In fact, so convinced are they in this perspective of the Sermon on the Mount that some of them even advocate that this sermon is the only part of Scripture even necessary to understand and follow. 
But of course, to read the Sermon on the Mount is nothing more than a handbook for moralistic do-gooders who believe that their own righteousness is good enough to get them to heaven is to grossly misread this sermon and to turn it on its head as to what Jesus really meant by his teaching. Now the truth is, if we read the Sermon on the Mount correctly and therefore in context, then what we will see about ourselves is that apart from God's transforming power and grace in Jesus Christ, it is impossible to meet the righteous standards set forth in this sermon. For instance, to have a heart that is humble before God, mourning over sin, submitted to God, hungering for his righteousness, merciful to others, driven by a supreme passion for God and pursuing gospel peace with all men. This kind of heart can only be produced by God's omnipotent grace. Moreover, to have a heart that is self-denying, forgiving, pure, trustworthy, faithful, non-retaliatory, and seeks to love those who hate you. A heart with these kind of affections manifesting these kind of actions can only be credited to the power of God alone. And of course, to live a life that is fully devoted to God, whereby you're treasuring heavenly treasures instead of earthly treasures, and free from anxiety because you're trusting God with all things. To live like this cannot be achieved by our own ability. It is a supernatural life, a life which God gives to the sinner whom he chooses to save in Christ. And this is the life which Jesus proclaims in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, with this in mind, I want us to turn this evening to Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. The seventh chapter of Matthew is, in fact, the closing chapter to the Sermon on the Mount. But here in verses 7 through 11, this is the Lord's conclusion regarding everything he has expounded since Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3. What Jesus strongly encourages here in Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11, is how his followers should pray in response to all that he has taught regarding the character and conduct of an authentic citizen in God's kingdom. Because, as I've already stated, when we truly understand what our Lord is calling us to be and do as his, as his kingdom people, God's kingdom people, there should be a very strong sense of how we cannot have the character and live the life set forth in this sermon apart from God's empowering grace. This is why what Jesus teaches us about prayer in this present passage makes total sense when kept in its proper context. And that context, again, is seeing that since the virtues of righteousness expounded in this sermon are beyond human attainment, then the only way we can have and develop such virtues is by God's grace alone. Hence, our Lord exhorts us to ask, seek, and knock for our Heavenly Father to give, us, to, 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 give to us these good things which all pertain to our new nature as Christians and the growth of that new nature in grace. That is the general theme and context of Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. Now, as we approach this passage for our study, I want us to understand and be encouraged by two principles our Lord Jesus teaches concerning prayer for spiritual growth. Prayer for spiritual growth. First, we must be persistent in prayer for our spiritual growth. Second, we must be confident in prayer for our spiritual growth. So, to begin with, let's notice that we must be persistent in prayer for our spiritual growth. Look at me at verses 7 and 8. 
Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Now, the first thing we need to pay attention to in this passage are the verbs our Lord uses, ask, seek, knock. Each of these verbs is employed in the Greek grammar as present imperatives. We should therefore read these verbs as divine commands for continuous action. Jesus is imploring us to keep on asking, to keep on seeking, to keep on knocking. In addition to their grammatical construction, there's also an ascending urgency in both their connection and expression. As one writer illustrates, a child, if his mother is near and visible, asks. If she is neither, he seeks. While if she is inaccessible in her room, he knocks. Charles Spurgeon spoke to this ascending urgency of the verbs Jesus uses here by saying, Let your prayer be adapted to the case. Let it increase in intensity. Let it advance in the largeness of its object. To receive a gift is simple. To find a treasure is more enriching. To enter into a palace is best of all. Each prayer is prescribed, accepted, and rewarded in a manner suitable to its character. But looking more carefully at the words Jesus employs, we see that the term ask implies asking for a conscious need. The word also suggests humility in asking, for it was commonly used of one asking a superior. Following the expression to ask, there is then the command to seek. This involves asking, but adds with it action. The idea is not merely to express one's need, but to get up and look around for help. And thus involves effort. Finally, the word translated knock includes asking plus seeking plus persevering, like someone who keeps pounding on a closed door. Therefore, each of these words pile on top of the other with a forceful intensity. At the driving point our Lord is making to us by both the words and their grammatical construction is that when it comes to prayer, we must be urgent, intense, passionate, and thereby persistent with our petitions to God. There should be nothing half-hearted about our praying. There should be nothing slack or sluggish or dull in how we petition our Father in heaven. Our whole heart and soul and mind should be fervently engaged in the exercise of entreating God in prayer. But to what end are we praying with such intensity and persistency? Well, the answer to this question brings us back to the main thrust of this passage set in its right context. Our Lord Jesus is calling us to be persistent in our praying for spiritual growth. And while there is nothing wrong in persevering in prayer when, say, a loved one is sick, or when we are in financial trouble, or when we are studying hard to make a good grade in school, or hoping for a promotion in our career. Yet none of these things fit the context of what Jesus is connecting to our asking, seeking, and knocking. We need to keep this always in perspective. But with this perspective, we need to raise some important self-examining questions. 
Are we persistent in our prayers for the spiritual growth of both ourselves and others? For instance, do we ask, seek, and knock for greater humility before God and others? Do we seek God to increase our love for him and others? Are we continually knocking and treating God with urgency that he will develop in us a spirit that is more forgiving, kind, tender-hearted, and compassionate? Do we need more growth in faithfulness and integrity with both our words and actions? If so, are we intensely urging God to grow us in such grace? Is greater likeness to the character of our Lord Jesus Christ the supreme petition we are bringing before God in prayer, asking, seeking, knocking? I fear that if we were truly and painfully honest, our persistence in prayer centers more around our physical needs than it does our spiritual growth. Frankly, we find it easier to persevere in prayer for physical needs than we do for spiritual growth. I believe one reason this is true is due to the fact that many Christians in our day are just so biblically illiterate that they do not even know where to begin in how to pray for greater growth and maturity in the fruit of the Spirit. Yet, if we're going to be true to Scripture, what treasure is a greater treasure than both belonging to Christ and bearing His image? There is no comparison in all the world to being united with Christ and bearing His image. This is why God has predestined us to be saved. It is the reason and purpose for all that we are and do in this world as Christians. Therefore, when it comes to what we pray for the most, when it comes to what we are most consistent to petition God with, there is nothing that should take a greater priority than our being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ our Lord. And that sacred image of our Lord is what we see in all the mandates for righteousness throughout the Sermon on the Mount. But when we understand this, we should be deeply encouraged by what Jesus is commanding us to do. Our persistence in prayer for spiritual growth will never be in vain. Why? It's because with this command Jesus gives, notice that he attaches precious promises. Look at this. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What our Lord Jesus is fortifying to our hearts is that to be constant and thereby persistent in our petitions for the spiritual growth of our lives as his people, we will see it and experience it guaranteed. We are certain of this because of the promise of our Lord. But from looking at our persistence in prayer for spiritual growth, let's move now to the second point in our exposition. We are to be confident, confident in prayer for our spiritual growth. Look with me at verses 9 through 11. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? 
If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Our confidence in prayer for spiritual growth has already been introduced in verses 7 and 8 by the promises Jesus connects with the commands to ask, seek, and knock. If we ask, we will receive. If we seek, we will find. If we knock, it will be open to us. These divine promises ground us in the assurance that if we are persistent in praying for spiritual growth, we will, in fact, gain the spiritual growth we are seeking. But now in verses 9 through 11, Jesus centers all of his teaching on the confidence we should have in our constant praying for spiritual growth. And this, this confidence lies in a striking contrast our Lord makes between earthly fathers versus our heavenly father. When it comes to earthly fathers, what does Jesus say? Or which one of you if his son asks him for bread, we'll give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. Each of these questions is rhetorical and therefore they answer themselves. No loving and caring father would be so cruel and deceiving as to give his son a stone when he asks for bread, nor give him a serpent, a serpent when he asks for fish. The primary point Jesus is making here is that it is unnatural and hence absurd for an earthly father to deny the physical needs of his son and replace them with what would be harmful and even deadly. But as much as an earthly father would seek to meet the needs of his children in the most loving and caring way, Jesus now moves on to show a stark contrast between earthly fathers and our heavenly father. And the thrust of this contrast is to build in us an unshakable confidence in our Heavenly Father in meeting our needs for spiritual growth. In verse 11, look at what Jesus says. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? In this declaration, Jesus uses his familiar how much more argument to state that if something is true of the lesser, then how much more of the greater? This is why our Lord's words here describing earthly fathers to our heavenly father, it's not a comparison, but a contrast. Indeed, the contrast is made with a vivid bluntness when Jesus lumps all earthly fathers into the category of those who are evil. Whereas our heavenly father cannot be placed in such a description. Of the term evil, Jesus is speaking directly to the fact of man's fallen and corrupt character. It is not therefore referring to evil deeds, but to an evil nature. What Jesus is thus saying about all earthly fathers is that even the best and most loving earthly fathers are still sinful at the very core of their being. Despite how good we may think our daddy is, yet the truth of the matter is that he is a man who is inherently sinful. Our daddy is in fact an evil man. However, Jesus makes clear 
that this evil earthly father knows how to give good gifts to his children. In other words, earthly fathers, though sinful, perceive and understand with a keen sense how to give good gifts to their children. Their evil nature does not hinder them from having both the caring ability and and sensitive understanding to provide their children with good gifts. This, of course, speaks to the image of God that remains in all sinners after the fall, though that image has been badly marred by sin. But in spite of such graciousness and kindness, we see in sinful earthly fathers towards their children, yet we must remember they are still sinful men. They are still sinful men. An earthly father may never give his child a stone for bread, but sometimes he does make mistakes. His sinfulness impedes him from ever reaching perfections in his decisions, choices, in the direction he provides for his children. In short, because an earthly father is evil, he is therefore not infallible in the way he raises his children. He will always fall short always fall short in being a perfect father. And it is right here where the contrast Jesus makes stands out in bold relief between earthly fathers and our heavenly father. Our heavenly father is not evil. He is not sinful. He never errs in anything he chooses for us and purposes to give us as his children because he knows our needs with a perfect knowledge and has both the omnipotent power and infallible wisdom to supply what we need when we need it. Moreover, God's kindness and graciousness to give us what we need has no comparison with any earthly father. Thus Jesus declares, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more, you see, the greater, lesser to the greater, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Here, therefore, is the confidence we have in praying for our spiritual growth. Our Father who is in heaven is perfect. He is perfect in his love for us, his compassion for us, his care for us, his knowledge of us. But not only does our Heavenly Father have the perfect knowledge, power, and wisdom to give us what we need to grow spiritually, But he wants to give us, he wants to give us what we need to grow spiritually. This is why our Lord Jesus strongly encourages us. Indeed, he commands us to ask, seek, knock in earnest, constant prayer to God our Father to give us the good gifts necessary to grow in grace. Because as we go to God in prayer for such good gifts, we can go with the sweet promise that he will indeed give to us the very thing we need most to mature us spiritually as his children. Commenting on this truth, R. Kent Hughes added these layers of understanding. He wrote, Our assurance is this. God will give us anything that is good for us spiritually, anything, if we keep asking him for it. If you do not yet have eternal life through Jesus Christ, you may be sure he will give it to you if you ask with all your heart. If you're a believer but are short on Christian graces, you need to keep praying. If you often find yourself lying, if you begin to ask and seek and knock, God will help you become a truth teller. If you are not generous, 
Make a habit of passionate prayer and he will give you a generous spirit. If you're not kind but persistently seek God for a kind spirit, he will give it to you. Just think what would, what would happen if we prayed for these things for ourselves and our brothers and sisters as intensely as we pray for our physical needs. The church would explode because a far greater proportion of its people would be living kingdom lives. Our pulpits would be filled with preachers of power. The mission fields would shrink as thousands more poured out to the harvest with greater power. What R. Kent Hughes is expressing here is nothing more than the blunt force of James chapter 4, verse 2. You remember this? James says, you do not have because you do not ask. You do not have because you do not ask. If we lack in spiritual growth, it's our fault. It's our fault. You do not have because you do not ask. Jesus commands us to ask, seek, knock in prayer for our spiritual growth and grace. And we will receive fine and, and it will be open to us. But if we are not obeying our Lord's command in this passage, then how could we dare think that we will continue to grow in greater grace and likeness to Christ? Again, James says, you do not have because you do not ask. Over 200 years ago, the great hymn writer and Anglican pastor John Newton, who's also the author of Amazing Grace, he composed these encouraging words to every Christian to be constant and earnest in prayer for our spiritual needs. They are fitting words under all that we have considered from Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11. Here's what Newton wrote. Come, my soul, thy case prepare. Jesus loves to answer prayer. He himself has bid thee pray Therefore, will not say thee nay. Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. Hmm. None can ever ask too much. I, I would dare say, based on what Newton wrote, that our problem is not that we ask too much from our Heavenly Father when it comes to our spiritual growth, but we actually ask too little. We ask too little. And that is why in the closing of the study from Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11, I exhort us all to take heed to what our Lord Jesus has called and commanded us to do in this matter of praying for our spiritual growth. So I leave you with three practical ways that we can carry out what we have learned from this passage. Number one, search out some spiritual qualities that you lack but would like to have. List them on a prayer list. I mean, what do you honestly see in your Christian life where you are lacking? You're lacking in growth. You need more growth in love, humility, patience, kindness, meekness, and so forth and so on. You need more growth. Okay, you yourself as a Christian, you know there are graces you're conscious of that you lack much in as far as in growth and maturity. Well, make it a constant prayer. Lord, I plead with you 
to grow me more in these graces, in these specific graces. Second, pray with passion and persistence for these graces. <laughs> Keep asking, seeking, and knocking. And lastly, and this is huge, have confidence that God your Father will give them to you. Why? Because this is what he has promised to do. This is what he's promised to do. And God always keeps his word. Now, in line of that, let me take you to James chapter 1. And so turn, take your Bibles, turn to James chapter 1. And I want you to follow along with me from verse 5 to verse 8 of James chapter 1. Okay? James gives us this instruction. If any of you lacks wisdom... Then what's, what does he say next? Let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. God makes a promise. Take God at his word and don't you dare doubt him. Beloved, listen to me. Our great God, Father, Son, and Spirit, take great offense when we as the people of God, doubt his word, doubt his promises. Jesus has promised us, if you ask, it'll be given to you. If you seek, you'll find it. If you knock, it will be open to you. Do you really believe that? Do you take the Lord at his word? What does the scripture repeatedly tell us in both the Old and New Testaments about God? What is, what, what is this one thing God cannot do? He cannot lie. In both the Old and New Testaments, that is repeated about God, the God who cannot lie. So the Lord makes this promise, and here in James, it's if any of you lacks wisdom... That's actually in the context of going through trials. Okay, verses 2, 2, 3, and 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, so the lacking of wisdom would be when you're in the midst of a great trial. Lord, I need your wisdom for what I'm facing. How, how do I navigate through this? Well, what does the Lord do? He makes this precious promise. If you lack wisdom, then ask God, and, and look at this, and what's the promise? Who gives generously to all without reproach, 
and it will be given him. You're lacking wisdom? Ask God for the wisdom. But what does James say? You ask in faith with no doubting. With no doubting. And so you pray, Lord, I thank you for the wisdom you have promised me from your word. Wisdom that I desperately need because I'm lacking so much of it for this particular whatever, trial, circumstance, need. And I am standing on your promise. You will give me the wisdom I lack. And I am not doubting you because you have made this promise and you are the God who cannot lie. And I believe that with all my heart. And so in faith, faith in you, trusting you, thank you for what you promised to give me. And you leave it there in Jesus' name. And you do not doubt. And you know what? And if the wisdom doesn't immediately come, then what does Jesus say? Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. Our Lord says in another passage in Luke, he says, pray and do not lose heart. Most Christians lose heart. They don't keep on persevering. They don't persist. But the Lord is commanding us and calling us as his people. Persist in these petitions and you will receive. I promise you, you will receive what you are asking for. Beloved, isn't that wonderful <laughs> that our great God is making such a promise to us? But how many Christians do you suppose really take God at his word about this? And they just fumble and stumble and are so stifled in their spiritual growth. And the Lord is saying, all you have to do is ask. All you have to do is seek fine, knock, it'll be open to you. I'll give it to you. It's my joy to give it to you. We need to take God at his word. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you are a promise-keeping God. And yet, Lord, we ask your forgiveness for every time that we have doubted you. For every time, Lord, that we have, we have defaulted to that double-mindedness, that vacillation between faith and unbelief. Lord, we ask of you tonight in faith, with no doubting, that you will increase in us the graces to seek you more in prayer, for greater growth in the fruit of the Spirit that will image forth with greater vividness and integrity the image of our Lord Jesus Christ, who you have united us with forever as our Lord, our Redeemer, our Savior, our very life. We thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.